Right, if you could turn to Luke 22. I know it's Palm Sunday, but we're not doing a Palm Sunday sermon. We're uh, looking a little bit ahead since we're sticking with our idea of feasts in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're going to the next feast, which comes almost immediately after Palm Sunday. Um, I'm going to read, uh, actually gonna, I'm going to preach from 7 to 20, but I'm going to read the first six verses just to provide a little bit of the context that I'm going to refer to. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, When you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came... He reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, even as we speak of this, that you would show us mercy. That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That you would shine your light into our hearts that we might behold the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ that we might see Jesus as He is, the Savior of sinners, that we might see ourselves as we are, sinners who needed a Savior. And so whether we've already embraced Him or whether we have not yet, we would see Him for what He is. That we would feel a desire to know Him, to love Him, to thank Him for His great ministry on our behalf. 
And so use your word amongst us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Memorable meals. We've all had memorable meals. One of which took place not too far from here at a place that no longer exists, Burrito Patio. I remember that meal because I had passed my transfer exam and I was now going to be the pastor of Desert Springs ending a three-year wait process that was very painful, for, especially for Amy and myself. It was a great meal. I wish we could go back and have another great meal just like that one. That's part of the purpose of great meals, is to celebrate something that has happened, a great transition, a great change that happened. And then we often set up, set these future meals in line, so to speak. Birthdays. We celebrate birthday meals because of not what happened that day, but what happened that day many years earlier. We rejoice and we celebrate. Wedding meals. I almost hesitate to bring that one up because now Amy's already shaking her head. She knows what's going to come. But you know what was really important about that meal was the fact that it was the first meal that I had with her as my wife. The first of many meals that I would have with her as my wife. And so every year we remember that and we go out usually for Thai food And we remember that day because that day has shaped every day since. That's the idea of this memorable meal. Jesus is about to sit down for a memorable meal with his disciples. And it's twofold because it's remembering something that happened a long time ago, but it's also going to set them up to remember something even greater that was about to happen. That's right, Passover and the Last Supper. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus gives himself so people can enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. And let's start with the fact that Jesus suffers to fulfill the Passover. There's a reason why I read that longer passage. I want you to keep in mind that Satan that Judas and that the religious leaders have been at work plotting the demise of Jesus. They have been at work to destroy Him, and now they have the semblance of a plan, and Judas is waiting for the best moment when he can get Jesus away from the crowds, and he can betray Jesus to these religious leaders, and thus fulfill their plan and Satan's for His death. And so it is within that context we see this mysterious plan of Jesus to have a secret sort of Passover celebration. The location was not mentioned ahead of time precisely so that Judas cannot betray Jesus at that particular meal, but rather later in the evening. What we need to keep in mind right here, I think, is that there is always more going on than meets the eye. What met the eye was the strategies of the priests and the Pharisees to destroy Jesus. What didn't meet the eye was the plan of God for the salvation of sinners. 
that what is going to happen is rooted in God's eternal plan for His people. And that Jesus is at work. This is not an accident that's going to befall Jesus. It's not a tragedy that's going to befall Jesus. But it is the plan of God brought to fruition for our good. That's what's going on here. You see, God has this plan that's unfolding in the midst of everything. And Passover was a picture of that plan. Passover was celebrated each year as a mandatory feast. All the men of Israel were required to show up in Jerusalem for this particular feast that celebrated the first Passover. Celebrating God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt. God's deliverance of Israel from the tyranny of Pharaoh. And so... This meal was a commemoration of the original meal that was part of God's deliverance of that people. And so as Jesus sits down at table with these men, He says that He has desired earnestly to eat this Passover with them before He suffers. And it's sort of a weird grammatical thing that takes place there. It's the noun and the verb to suffer. I mean, sorry, to desire. Does he desire to desire, <laughs> in a sense? And it's what's really interesting to me is that this word desire is the same one that we find in places that's usually connected with sinful desires. Places like James chapter 4. What is the cause of all of these fights amongst you? Your sinful desires. Same word. Has that idea of, of uppermost desire, most important desire. And so the uppermost desire for Jesus was not sinful in this instance, but his uppermost desire was to celebrate this Passover with his disciples before he suffers. This meal matters to Jesus. This meal is an important part of His suffering for His people. It illuminates His suffering for His people. It's going to put His suffering out of the context of tragedy and into the context of redemption. Because the, the, the suffering that took place in the Passover, the original one, the deaths that took place were not simply tragic, but the deaths of the firstborn of all of Egypt were redemptive to set Israel free. And so this death that Jesus is about to suffer is intended to set people free. And so in the Exodus, you have an earthly redemption. But now we have moving towards this eternal redemption that's about to take place. And so the the Exodus and the Passover are, are a shadow that points to Christ, the substance. A, a type of deliverance that points to the great deliverance that Jesus is about to accomplish by His death and His resurrection. Paul saw this, for he says in 1 Corinthians 5, he calls Christ our Passover, who has been sacrificed. Jesus 
is what the lambs of Passover pointed to. And so what we see is that Jesus experienced the greater Passover, so to speak. He fulfilled the original Passover feast. He has now rendered it obsolete. No longer were they to sacrifice lambs, hundreds and thousands of lambs, because the one Lamb of God has been sacrificed for sinners, putting an end to the Passover feast. They do not celebrate it in faith today, but actually they celebrate it in unbelief. Because there's a rejection of the one who fulfills it. When we come to the table, we do not come to the Passover. We come to the Lord's table, greater than the Passover, just as His sacrifice was greater than the Passover sacrifice. For that merely freed them from Egypt. That did not free them from sin. But Jesus frees us from spiritual slavery to sin. Later, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of Me. And so, He's initiating this this celebratory meal that is to follow as He says this. There's a new meal that He's instituting that looks like Passover in some ways, but isn't Passover. He does this because we suffer from spiritual amnesia. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. And it was intended to be a meal that addresses our spiritual amnesia. And in that way, it's similar to the Passover. The Passover as this mandatory feast included instruction. We didn't read from that particular text when we read from uh, the passage in Exodus, but there's another one. When your children say, why are we doing this? The Israelites were supposed to instruct their children and, and bring them through the story of their redemption from Egypt. They were to remind them of whose they are, that they belonged to the Lord. They were, remind, they were to remind their children who they are. You are Israelites, people in covenant with God. And you're in the land that He has given you. And so in a similar fashion, the supper is intended to speak to us. It intends to say to us that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And there is one who has laid down his life for us. And so... Just as an anniversary meal, we, we sit down and it's just the two of us and we remind each other of why we married each other in the first place and we look ahead to the years that we hopefully have together as husband and wife. This is meant to be a time to remember how it is we have come to Jesus and to remember the many years we, we hope to have with Jesus. So that this is intended to form us spiritually. 
It's not meant to just sort of be a thing that we do, but it's meant to speak to us God's promises as well as Christ's death so that we can receive those promises. And so the Lord's table is intended, is intended to form us spiritually. It's a, an important aspect of how we grow as Christians. And so it should not be neglected or celebrated quarterly or whatever else people sometimes do with this table. They neglect it to their peril. So Jesus' suffering is, is given context by the Passover, but we see that it also fulfills the Passover feast. So secondly, what we see here is that Jesus suffered as a substitute for us. The Passover meal generally included four shared cups of wine. Bread is usually taken uh, or broken after the first two cups, so we're not sure uh, which cup is discussed here first. But Jesus follows the general liturgy, the general pattern of the Passover, but then he shifts things. He weaves in the story, essentially, of his own impending death into this, which is what shows me that it is greater, better than Passover for some of the reasons I've already mentioned. And so he says, this, speaking of the bread, is my body, which is given for you. And uh, a lot of trees have been killed trying to understand that phrase, this is my body. I'm not going to go over that a whole lot. That's not really my point this morning. But the bread represented the body of Christ. In this instance, that's what the is is representational it is it was not literally his body although his body would literally be given for them the next day but that bread was not literally his body but rather represented his body we see that he has not yet been sacrificed and so therefore it would appear to be representational This is not his body, nor does it in the future become his body through a miracle as Rome and sometimes the Lutherans would have us to believe. Here's what I really want to narrow in on. Jesus, as the Passover, is a substitute for sinners who break bread in faith. Break that bread in faith. You see, the Passover lamb was a substitute for the firstborn of each household. So when you sacrifice that lamb, it was in the place of the impending death of the firstborn of your family. Okay, Now, of course, remember the Egyptians didn't do that and their firstborns were killed. 
Instead of your first, instead of you as a faithful Israelite, your firstborn uh, being killed by the destroyer, the lamb was killed, and as we'll see later, the blood was placed upon the doorposts. But the lamb was a substitute. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the better substitute, the perfect substitute. He is the one who takes the place of sinners. And so the part of what the supper says to us as it instructs us is that Jesus loves us and gave Himself for us as the Savior. To apply Galatians 2.20. That's what it speaks to us. It speaks to us that we are slaves of sin no more. It speaks to our essential identity as servants of God, sons of God, not slaves of sin. We see more. If we go to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one, for we all partake of the one bread. And so this bread, this loaf, we are intended to partake of the one loaf, just as we partake of the one Christ. As a result, we become one body. Because we partake of the one Christ, we form one body, Christ's. And so, in addition to our redemption... Christ's, uh, sorry, this Lord's table, this last supper, in a sense, points to our unity in Christ. See, we partake. It's more than a memorial. We, we have a real experience with Jesus when we partake of this by faith. But the supper says that you and I are part of a community that is formed by and for Christ. We're a community that does not exist simply for itself, but that we exist for Jesus, His glory, His enjoyment, as well as our good. It's similar to when we celebrate our anniversary. We are reminded that our identity changed it shifted when we got married that amy is not just amy now she's amy wife of steve and steve is husband of amy there's a unity that existed that did not exist before that marriage ceremony that now we are in covenant with one another And we enjoy a spiritual union with one another. And so the Lord's Supper speaks a similar word to us. It's not simply about you and Jesus. It is about us and Jesus. And so often we forget that. 
you are part of a community for Christ, by Christ. Now, Jesus doesn't stop with the bread. Just as the Passover didn't stop with the bread. During the Passover, as I've mentioned, the blood of the lamb or the kid, as it says they could use goats, um, was placed on the doorframe as a sign of their faith. That they believed that that substitute would be in their place when the destroyer came. And so that's what happened. When the destroying angel came and he came to an Israelite house, he would see the blood and pass over that house instead of bringing judgment and despair to that house. And when he got to the houses of the Egyptians, there would be no blood, uh, although I think a couple of them did celebrate it. They joined with the Jews and they would leave as well. It would not pass over but bring judgment to that house taking the firstborn, whether of livestock or of humans. The blood was the reason that the angel passed over judgment. And so Jesus says here, this cup that is poured out for you, and in other places he says that this is his blood. We'll get, we'll get there later. But drink sacrifices were poured out, and Jesus speaks of his, this cup being poured out as a sacrifice. His blood is a sacrifice that is a substitute for our blood or life for our rebellion and unbelief. So if we, partake of his of the cup of his blood he passes over us from his judgment to come his love his life rather is poured out by Christ himself in place of our lives so that we can partake of that eternal life that he earned for us and so we see that the the cup is a participation or fellowship another another way of putting that with or a sharing of the blood of Christ so that we are free from the guilt and free from the condemnation that are due to us from our rebellion. And so Jesus is the greater substitute, doing what lambs could not do, removing the guilt and shame and, importantly, judgment. Third, though I feel like I'm going a hundred miles an hour, (laughs) Jesus fulfills the kingdom through covenant. he, He suffers to fulfill the Passover. He suffered as a substitute for us, but he also fulfills the kingdom through covenant. Remember, we've talked about this a few times the Pharisees thought that they would usher in the kingdom through their ritual purity and obedience. They thought they had the power to usher in the kingdom. But ultimately, it's Jesus and Jesus alone who has the power, the ability to usher in to the kingdom, in the kingdom. So Jesus utters this um, confusing sentence. 
I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven. This has been interpreted two ways. One is that he did not even partake of that particular meal. That he distributed it to his disciples but did not partake of it himself. The other way of understanding this would be that he partook of it with them at that particular meal but would not partake of it again until the wedding supper of the Lamb. Until about 20 minutes ago, I was pretty sure it was the latter of these two. Then a, then a thought came to me, so I'm not going to focus on this. Because <laughs> I'm not sure it's all that important in the main scheme of things, whether or not he, the, the point that I don't think is important is whether he had that supper, whether he had part of that bread. One of the arguments, I guess, that came to me as to why he would not is because that blood, that bread and that uh, cup represented himself. And so he would not partake of himself. So that was my new thought 20 minutes ago. See, sermon's never done. So hopefully that did not completely ruin your day right there. <laughs> But what's important here is this idea of fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That Jesus is somehow connecting this with the fulfillment or the consummation of the kingdom. That there is, there's going to be a delay between the now of, of Him celebrating the supper with the disciples and the fulfillment of the kingdom. And that at least during the duration of that, Jesus is not going to be on earth uh, physically celebrating the Lord's Supper with them. He's not going to be dining with them in this particular fashion, but that one day He will when the kingdom comes to fulfillment. How is it that the kingdom is ushered in? I think it's tied in with this idea. He says, this is the cup. Is the new covenant in my blood. He's bringing us into a new kingdom. Through a new covenant. Colossians 1 talks about how the Father has... Uh, transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, and it's in this Son that we have redemption, that we have the forgiveness of sin, specifically because of the blood that He sheds. But we have to recognize that it is the covenant that regulates kingdom life and membership. Covenant determines who's in, who's out. And if you're in, how you're supposed to live. Okay? And so there's a shift in the history of redemption that is about to take place with the death of Jesus. The promised new covenant that we see in places like Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, that we see in Ezekiel 36, 
that that new covenant is about to become a reality in the death of Jesus the next day. That His blood is the blood of the covenant. Now that's a phrase that most of us probably don't understand. And that's okay. To understand it, Exodus 24, verse 8, And Moses took the blood of the sacrifice, and he threw it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So the Mosaic covenant okay, was presented to them, but it was sealed with a, with a sacrifice, and the blood of that sacrificial animal was then cast upon the people of Israel. Signifying that if they broke this covenant, they would be like that sacrificed animal. Okay. And so, with the new covenant, there's a new sacrifice. Jesus, not a lamb, not a bull. But Jesus is the one who bears our covenant breaking. Who bears the penalty that we incur when we don't live faithfully according to the covenant, when we break God's law. And so this new covenant is initiated. The covenant with Moses is ended. And the new covenant has begun. It is His death and His resurrection that will usher in the kingdom in its initial phase we see in Pentecost and which continues now. It's His death and His resurrection that qualify us to share in this kingdom living. He is the sacrifice that initiates and bears the penalty for us when we break His covenant. It is because He shed His blood that the bloody signs of the old covenant have become bloodless signs. Gone is circumcision. Gone is the Passover. Because the blood needed for forgiveness is done. No more shedding of blood necessary. Because Christ's shedding of blood, of His own blood was sufficient for our salvation. So now, as people who are brought into this new covenant life, how, how are we to sort of respond to that or, or live in light of that? And one of the indications from that, I think, is from Acts chapter 2, that, that very powerful one sentence there in verse 42. Because of this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. 
There's two elements of this that I want us to kind of just key on for a moment. The apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread. Word and sacrament. They devoted themselves, they gave themselves to the Word and the sacrament. Because the promises of the New Covenant were concluded that God would write His law on our hearts. That happens through the preaching of the Word. He also promised He would sprinkle our hearts, cleanse us from our idolatry. And so we see as well sacrament there in the promise of the New Covenant. He writes His law on our hearts and gives us His Holy Spirit so that we as members of this New Covenant, that we've, re- we've received all this by grace, but that we can begin to live faithfully in His kingdom. Something profound has happened. Not just the forgiveness of sin, as though that was a small thing, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live faithfully as His people. What a great covenant that is. What great blessing we have. And it is only because of Christ that we enjoy this. But if we go back to the supper, we should remember that, it, that part of what it speaks to us is that you are set apart from the world by that covenant for kingdom living, otherwise known as holiness. And so, while it proclaims His death, it also proclaims to us the newness of life that we're supposed to experience because we have also been raised with Jesus Christ just as we have died with Jesus Christ. When we get together for our anniversary dinners, one of the things that I'm reminded of is I have died to every other woman and live to that one my life is intended to be shaped by that fact. The fact of my covenant with Amy, my union with Amy, is one of the two main determinative factors of my life. That and Jesus. The two most important relationships. And I need to be remembered of that. We all do. That we have been set apart. We are exclusively His. Belong to Him. And therefore are to live faithfully to Him. Well, memorable meals are very important for the transitions, the changes in life. Because they, they, they mark them out for us. So that we can remember them 
They spawn meals to remind us of those changes and transitions. Passover in particular reminded Israel of the redemption that they received from slavery. It reminded them that they were God's people in God's land and that they were supposed to be devoted to Him as revealed by God's law. Jesus comes. Jesus fulfills the Passover as the greater Passover. He delivers His people not from physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery, from guilt, from fear, from shame and condemnation. And so we no longer celebrate the Passover. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we celebrate it to remind ourselves of Christ's suffering for us and what it means. That Jesus is our substitute and therefore is our Savior. It says to us that we are now more loved than we could ever imagine. And we are loved in particular by the triune God. It speaks to us that we have been formed into this holy community that's under His care and under His direction. So as we come to the table each week, may God continue to fashion us, to spiritually form us, to remake us as we celebrate that meal to remember. Let's pray. Father, uh, work in us by the Word and by sacrament. As we recognize the work of Your Spirit in both of those, to help us to understand Your Word in its fullness as well as to understand the sacraments with their promises of salvation. Help us to remember that this is more than just a memorial. That we participate have fellowship with Jesus in the midst of this. But Jesus as our bleeding, dying Savior. So Father, help us to come at the table with a richer, better understanding so that we have a richer, better experience of Your blessing at the table. Father, help us particularly to remember our unity as we come to the table. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.